0: Hi guys, it's Skylar. A lot has happened since episode 6, so we have a few things to catch up on before we get this episode started. Firstly, I got the chance recently to meet a bunch of listeners in person, which was really lovely. A couple of weeks ago I was participating in a storytelling event in Jaffa, and discovered that there were a handful of intractable fans in the audience. And likewise, I had the honor of meeting listener Paul Honig from Connecticut, as well as members of his synagogue, the Farmington Valley Jewish Congregation, and their Rabbi Becca Goldman. The group was passing through Tel Aviv this week and they asked me to come and speak to them about the show. It was really lovely to put some faces to names and also to get the chance to talk to some of you guys about what it's like to tell stories about such a complex topic. So thank you to everyone for the warm welcome. Lastly, before we get started, a reminder that if you're loving tractable, share with us why. Not only do we love hearing from you, and indeed, occasionally it does lead to fun meetups, but by rating and reviewing us, you'll also bump us up the charts and into the earbuds of more people around the world. So scroll on down and give us some stars. This week on Intractable, we're following a thread picked up in our previous episode.
1: If you talk to people on the other side, you're going to be exposed to their perspective. And if you're listening, it's going to be very difficult Not to realize that there isn't one side that is good and one side that's evil in this conflict, but that both sides are both good and evil.
0: In episode six, we spoke a lot about lack of trust, why it's such a natural roadblock to negotiations, as well as where it comes from and what can be done about it. In truth, this is not a new theme for us. Ever since our first episode, we've spoken about the cyclical nature of violence in this conflict, and why that violence makes it so difficult for either side to see the other as full, three-dimensional human beings. So while the topic of this episode is rooted in something we're quite familiar with by now, this time we're tackling it from a different angle. Because at the end of the day, if we drop the vague, almost academic terms of war and ceasefire, or terror and calm, or negotiation and stalemate, and instead view the problem we're facing from a human perspective? What we see in its place is a chain of parents and children, generations inheriting the situation one after the next. So our question this episode is, what about the coming generation? What about the kids and young adults who won't be included in a theoretical negotiation if it were to happen now? but whose lives and futures are on the line. Today, we'll take a look inside two organizations and two events who are bringing young people together across the divides. In Jaffa, we'll investigate an innovative idea cooked up by a professor of conflict studies to get young Israeli and Palestinian women together to have tough conversations. Then in Jerusalem, a look inside a school unlike most others here, one where Palestinian and Israeli children learn together Play together, and most importantly, navigate what it means to be a kid in this place together, in both Arabic and Hebrew. This is episode seven The Kids Are All Right. Part one of our story today begins at an aroma cafe on the second floor of a mall in the suburbs of Tel Aviv. Actually, the story begins in a handful of other more exciting places, but this coffee shop, which is sort of like the Starbucks of Israel, is where I met Sapir Handelman one morning several weeks ago. Sapir is an academic. A professor of conflict studies and a student of the ways that other long-running conflicts, like the ones in Northern Ireland or South Africa, finally managed to find their ends.
2: I even received the most important academic prize in, in Europe for advancing the peace and conflict research. And it's sometimes it's it's making me mad because they give me prizes, but they don't listen to me. So. <laughs>
0: Perhaps not so surprisingly, Sapir himself has a very peaceful countenance. He's got a placid smile, a head full of curls, and waves me over to his table when he spots me. I'm here to talk to him about the organization he started, called Minds of Peace, which I discovered online while researching one of our past episodes. The basic thesis of Minds of Peace is that there's really no impetus for politicians to bring an end to the conflict unless there's pressure from the people. And if there's little to no contact between the peoples involved in a conflict, it's very unlikely that there will be any pressure coming from them. And so, in order to spark solutions-oriented contact between Israelis and Palestinians, Minds of Peace organizes what it calls People's Peace Talks, events that bring together groups of Israelis and Palestinians from all across the land and all across the political spectrum to negotiate with one another.
2: The idea was very simple. You take an Israeli delegation and a Palestinian delegation. Settlers, right wingers, whatever you want. In front of an audience. You give them five sessions to reach agreements. Every negotiation is two hours. In the middle you let the audience to participate. Two ground rules for the discussion. The first is not to demean each other, to show respect. The second is not to go to a historical debate. I did to you, you did to me, because there's no end to this. There's two different narratives.
0: After establishing the two ground rules, the peace talks begin. Each negotiating table embarks on a two-stage process that's quite simple in structure, but in reality is very difficult to navigate. The first stage is outlining what needs to happen in order for each side to build a working trust between the two groups. In other words, what's something that each side can ask of the other, something that's possible to accomplish right away in order to show that they really mean business. Once the trust-building measures are debated and decided upon, then the talk moves on to the second stage, which is outlining the peace plan itself. If you recall the term track two diplomacy from our last episode, this is a textbook example of that. The people who sit at these tables are not diplomats themselves, but they do live every day in this conflict. And that's experience enough to know what they can and cannot accept.
2: We did it around 40 times. What do you think? They reach agreements or not? I
0: don't know. Guess. Probably not.
2: They all the time reach agreements. Every time? Almost.
0: Now, I have to admit something. Something you could probably guess from the way I responded to Sapir's question just then. I was surprised to hear that the participants in Sapir's peace talks almost always find a solution. I've been researching and interviewing people about this situation for a year now, and while I do have my hopeful moments, I also don't have my head stuck in the clouds. There are a lot of complex realities on the ground. But more than half of the peace talks that Sapir has led over the years end in solutions. And Sapir's takeaway from these experiments is that generally, peace talks do work as long as the ones conducting them aren't politicians who are scared of getting potentially career-ending flack for making even one single concession to the other side. If you're wondering why I'm talking about Sapir and Minds of Peace in this episode, which is ostensibly about the next generation, we're getting to that point soon. Bolstered by his belief in the power of these informal peace talks, Sapir decided to try and kick up as much dust as he could. Because he knew that if Minds of Peace was to succeed in its mission statement, it needed to be operating on a regular basis getting as much attention as possible. So he tried pretty much everything he could think of to make that happen. Sapir's first tactic was to bring big-name guests, like Admiral Shabtai Levy, a well-known Israeli military guy who's pretty vocal about supporting right-wing parties. When that didn't work, he changed his tactic to get attention by holding the peace talks in public squares, first in Tel Aviv and then in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem... Things got interesting. While participants in the peace talk negotiated with one another, members of the audience, most of them passers-by who stumbled upon the event, made it clear that they were incensed by and opposed to the sight of a Palestinian and an Israeli flag side by side.
2: It was on the brink of violence. There was some some uh, cursing, some, but there was not really hard violence, because in the Israeli delegation there were three settlers. So it makes them confused, what you're doing there, what you're doing there? We repeated this experiment once, one month later, and the Mashbir Square looked like a mini civil war. At the beginning they broke the nose of the producer, No way. and then half of the audience a two-state solution. Out of the audience, we don't talk with terrorists.
0: And after that rather spicy event in Jerusalem, Sapir and his colleagues took their peace talks as far as Ramallah, but still struggled to get the Israeli media to cover it. So finally, Sapir decided to put on an event so big that it couldn't be ignored. 1,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and 1,000 Israelis meeting across the table from one another in Rabin Square in Tel Aviv. The idea was to fill the square with dozens of simultaneous peace talks between normal citizens. A massive logistical and bureaucratic effort. And still, hardly anything in the Israeli press.
2: I gave interviews to more than 50 press channels. Chinese, Japanese, Europeans. I couldn't handle it anymore. Hardly Israeli media. Only channel one the Central News, they did an article on us. In Rabin Square, no media at all. It was, I couldn't what? believe it. First of all, people do, do not believe that something like this could happen. I, my daughter was playing with the son of Avri Gilad. Avri Gilad is he's a reporter, He's very famous, very right-wing. He's I told him, you know that we're bringing thousand. You interviewed me. The first you, you know that we're bringing thousand Palestinians to negotiate. I said bullshit. I don't believe that something like this will happen. I, I cannot understand it.
0: Sapir's story made me think once more about that age-old thought experiment: if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it really make a sound? In this case, if a peace talk occurs in a public square but no media are around to spread the word, did it really happen? So I asked Sapir, how do you create something sustainable from this idea, and what do you do about the issue of apathy? His answer? It needs to become a much bigger movement. A movement so big that Sapir himself isn't really sure how to bring it to fruition. But in the meantime, he's turning to the next generation for help.
2: First of all, we started to do congresses with high school kids. Israeli school and Palestinian school. Last year, we did it with three Israeli schools and Palestinian schools. This year, we're going to do it with seven, eight, and we're going to grow. Now, we want to do it with universities. So, the Congress of the Ladies, which is going to do in... uh, weeks so this was is going to be the first step to start doing it with colleges on a regular basis like in the school it's part of the schedule every year they have a congress of uh, of the kids we have to expand it and expand it and expand it
0: and that's how a couple of weeks after i met with Sapir in this coffee shop in ramat aviv i found myself along with my intern jessica at the arab hebrew theater in old jaffa in the presence of 30 young Palestinian women and 30 young Israeli women. For many in the Palestinian delegation, whose members hailed from Hebron and Ramallah and Jerusalem and Nablus and even refugee camps on the skirts of a few of these cities, it was the first time they had ever come to see the coastline. Of the women in the room in either delegation, there were some who were more religious and some who were not religious at all. And with no small amount of nervous tension in the air, All 60 young women piled into the audience of the theater to receive instructions, in Arabic and Hebrew, on how the peace talks would go. Of the three tables at the event, two would happen with interpretation between Hebrew and Arabic, and the third would occur in English. I accompanied the women at the English table, partially because I figured the audio would be more interesting for you, and partially because I was intrigued to see if both sides would benefit from negotiating on unfamiliar linguistic ground.
3: Planning, but really something concrete that you feel that each side could do that would make um, trust feeling to continue working into, towards a
4: peace agreement. That... Should we say, Do you want us to say... Things that we would want from the other side that would build our trust, or things that we're offering from our side? What
3: do you want from the other side that would build your trust?
0: Mm -hmm. In practice, though, it proved less effective, since it turned out that one or two women on the Israeli side were native English speakers, and on the Palestinian side, the women could understand the broad topics, but most of them struggled to communicate in the more technical areas. Given the linguistic imbalance, the task of translating from English to Arabic fell on one of the Palestinian women, a young Jerusalemite named Adan.
4: Something that for me would be a first step to building trust would be uh, an acknowledgement from, uh, from the other side that there is a, a right for a Jewish state to exist somewhere within the borders of this land. For it to be a trust-building um, it wouldn't need to be, for me, all of the, the territory. It could also be within the borders of, of 67 or other
3: borders, but somewhere upon the, yeah. this geographical
1: area.
3: They have no problem with what you said. Uh, and they mentioned uh, the fact that um, they feel the same way, but they feel that in a way that they don't they don't actually get what they want. Like uh, when they want to go pray in the Aqsa Mosque, they they don't let them in. And like they also have a religious um, connection with the place, but they don't they don't get to experience that religious connection.
0: Once the table had discussed the first proposed trust-building measure, the women put it to a vote.
3: Do we have agreement around the table of mutual, mutual, or? Mutual I, I recognition. I mutual for the recognition? No,
4: if you don't feel yes, then you say Actually, no. at the beginning, I was no, but now yes.
0: <laughs> After the women voiced their support, Adan spoke up, saying she felt like she was an imperfect translator and would be happier if there was a way to bring in a professional.
3: I, I know that I'm not really translating 100% mm-hmm. what she's saying, and that's really like... That's yeah, have to
0: learn so while organizers looked into the possibility of rearranging the interpreters at the event, the women came up with more ideas of trust-building steps, like strengthening language learning between the sides. Then the interpreter arrived. a
4: great translator. I also want to hear what has to say.
0: That was her saying, I can't translate into English, only between Hebrew and Arabic and the women around the table saying, with a great deal of relief, that that's totally fine. There's no way I can summarize every conversation that occurred. But I will say that when the women from all three tables came together at the end of the day, the energy was decidedly different than it had been that morning. In the place of the nervousness and fear was excitement and exhilaration, People were eager to share the conversations they had had, and each table sent representatives to the stage to tell about their trust-building measures and the composition of their peace plan. As for the proposed solutions, two tables ended up settling on a kind of non-classical two-state solution, some arrangement that allowed both nationalities to have a government, but with the knowledge that the relationship between the two entities inherently ties the two together including the fact that it creates a need for joint efforts to keep and maintain the peace. One of the two groups announced that they had decided there needed to be two governments and two presidents, only the first presidents of each needed to be women. This proposition was of course met by wild cheers from the audience. The third table, the one that had begun its talk in English and the one that we had followed throughout the day, ended unresolved. The women were excited with the headway they had made, but frustrated that there wasn't more time to continue their negotiations. Afterwards, we caught up with two of the women from this third table, Rachel and Adan, and asked what they had thought of the experience.
3: It's so, it's so, like, hard to realize what, like, what is right in this situation. Yes. Yes. Because it... Honestly, like, we're, we're two people that <laughs> suffered Like uh, like uh, Two people as in like
4: our ancestors Yes but. and that's what I told you about suffering it, That's why we can't exactly. Say this is how much we suffer Against how much you suffered Because then we will never th- This conversation will never stop Because then the Jewish people will always say like Ah the holocaust And then you will always say like Ah oh, this is what you're doing to us now mm-hmm. And it's a discussion that never ends That's why comparing suffering is a discussion that i don't see an end to and i think it's more like being empathetic to the situation that is
3: exactly currently happening yes
4: i think that the only thing that i I, the thing that i'm i'm taking from this is the fact that that um this is such a large issue and there is really uh, not one apparent step that is supposed to be the next one because each step seems so big and so unrealistic and so and such a sacrifice that it's all about um, it's all about us as a people deciding on small steps rather than trying to think on what the big
3: steps of government should be. I feel like today was one of the most difficult conversations that I've had because in previous times that I've been in similar conversations it's been with people who are a lot more like minded in, uh, f- like, from the sense of age, from the sense of our environment, um, our religious beliefs, all of these things. But this time, uh, especially when it was like the Palestinian side and the Israeli side talking, I was extremely, I felt extremely different from the Palestinian side that I was sitting with. Um, and that's because it was, it was a lot more, it was a, a very diverse group of Palestinians. It w- who like experienced lives very. Our lives very differently. First of all, we were from different ages. Second of all, they came from the West Bank, and I was and I'm from Jerusalem. I have an Israeli passport, so technically I live a more pri- privileged life because of that. Um, and also religiously, because they are all. Most of them were pretty. Um, conservative religious Muslims and I'm an atheist so that already changes the argument and so I felt like it was really hard to reach to like realize what we wanted as Palestinians just because of those differences and that's always very difficult like realizing that even within your own community there are so many different sub-communities For the women who
0: attended the conference, participation was not an intriguing philosophical exercise. This wasn't some sort of theoretical, student-run event like Model United Nations. Of the women present at this gathering, there were those who had lost family members, or who had friends and loved ones wounded in the conflict. There were those who faced harassment at home for their participation, and many for whom coming and participating was not a walk in the park. This was a difficult, emotional thing to do, to sit down at a table across from people who, according to the headlines and most of the world, are supposed to hate you. And yet I was blown away by the ability of these young women to be vulnerable, to sit down and tell the truth about their fears for the future, and to listen honestly to the fears of the women across from them. I asked Sapir if he had expected that there would be any major differences in a women's talk versus the normal Minds of Peace events, which tend to draw mostly men. He said at the time that he didn't buy the idea that women are uniquely capable for building peace, but also that peace can't happen without their participation. For what it's worth, Adan's takeaway was a bit different. Yeah.
5: Any last
4: reflections about the day?
3: Um... Honestly, who run the world girls.
0: Part two of our story takes place on a breezy, sunny, uncharacteristically cool Jerusalem day earlier this summer, when a crowd of parents came to visit their children at school for a project fair. The song you're hearing now is being performed by those elementary school students, who are either Israeli or Palestinian, at Jerusalem's hand-in-hand school. Hand in Hand is one of a very small number of integrated bilingual schools in Israel, and it plays a fascinating role in shaping the lives and minds of both children and their families. Intractable had the chance to stop by on the day that the elementary school students proudly presented the culmination of a weeks-long project about identity. I'll let my new friend Rivka, who's in the sixth grade, break it down for you because she does a better job than I can. So what are we looking at right now? What are these it's, projects? It's
6: uh, it's an identity project. Uh-huh. Every year, every class gets a project. It's a, and it's about it starts with uh, about them and then about their family, mm-hmm. then about their house then about their area, then Jerusalem, and then uh, someone in their family. And then someone, which is the last one, which is sixth grade, someone you admire.
0: Right as Rivka is telling me about her identity project hero, who, in case you're wondering, is the American comedian and talk show host Ellen DeGeneres, another girl walks up and nudges Rivka to get her attention.
3: My name is Yana. Yana? Nice to meet you. Are you also in the sixth grade? Yes. I'm very cool. Same grade with her. You guys are friends, and um, she's one of my best friends.
1: How long have you guys known each
3: other?
0: Um,
6: first grade. Yeah, since first grade. She's, she's from here from um, kindergarten, uh-huh. but I came here in first grade, so we know each other. But we're friends in the last two years, three years, three years.
0: And where's yours? I did Rosa Parks. Ah, cool.
3: Why did you choose Rosa Parks? Because uh, she is a brave and amazing woman, and she means uh, a lot in my life.
0: Now, to understand why Rivka and Yana are so unusual as a pair of childhood best friends, you need to understand a little bit about the Jerusalem school system, some of which extends to the rest of Israel as well, but which is especially pronounced in this ancient, mixed city. Here's Noah Yammer, Director of International Engagement at Hand in Hand, explaining.
5: Arab kids go to Arab schools, Jewish kids go to Jewish schools. There are also separate schools for religious Jewish kids and secular Jewish kids. And that's just sort of how public schools here work. And of course, when you live in a conflict, uh, going to a separate school really affects who you are. Affects the ideas that come into your life, come into your world. who, And how you see the people around you, the people who live here. If I'm a Jewish kid and I go to school with only other Jewish secular kids... Like, I have an idea of who Arabs are, quote unquote, but I don't, I've never actually met a person. Um, my ideas come from the media, they come from people, there's huge amounts of fear and stereotypes and, and really from, from the information that we get and from the violence that people feel in their own lives.
0: About 20 years ago, though, a small group of parents decided to change this. Their kids attended a mixed Jewish-Arab preschool at the Jerusalem YMCA, but then, upon aging out of the program, would enter into the divided school system as normal, which the parents decided didn't make any sense if they put their kids in a mixed environment because they believed exactly in that, an integrated and mixed education system. And so Hand in Hand was born.
5: They started a school. a group of five-year-olds in a, in a small little classroom in the back of another school. Um, and then they grew up, and they were in first grade, and then they were in second grade, and then they were in third grade. And as those kids grew up, the school grew with them until, you know, they went all the way through the end of high school here in Jerusalem uh, in 2011 was the first graduating class. And right now in, in the Hand in Hand Jerusalem School, the Max Reign Jerusalem School, uh, we have around 700 students from K through 12. We also have five other schools around the country who also started in the same way, a group of parents in Jaffa and Haifa and, and Frakaro came to us and said, came to Hand in Hand and said, we want a school, we want our kids to grow up together for ourselves, for our community, for our city. Our goal is really to have one of these schools in every mixed region or mixed city in the country. So this is an option for those who want to choose this.
0: Today, Hand in Hand educates around 1,800 students living across six mixed cities in Israel. And demand runs high. There are another 1,000 students on their wait list annually and 10 to 15 communities of parents who have expressed an interest in bringing Hand in Hand to their cities. But even though demand is through the roof, it's not always easy to convince politicians.
1: If you were to come to people at universities and say, we now want to divide Jews and Arabs, they would be shocked. But when you come to educational authorities, you come to your average person and you say, we want four-year-olds and 14-year-olds to study together as Jews and Arabs,
0: it's almost equally shocking because it's so not the norm. This is Rebecca Bardock. She's the director of resource development for Hand in Hand, meaning she deals with the school system's expansion and integration into new communities. She's also the mother of Hand in Hand students.
1: Every day, Jewish and Arab kids are coming together, and the parents are coming together, and the staff is coming together, and they're learning each other's languages, and they're learning to communicate, and they're learning to build a pathway of really living together, really based on mutual understanding and mutual acceptance and mutual
0: recognition. Hold on. If you've been paying attention, a little spark may have just gone off in your head. Because if you recall the trust-building measures that our university students came up with in part one of this episode, you'll remember that two of them were just mentioned. Increasing language learning between Israelis and Palestinians, and mutual recognition of one another's distinct cultures, of one another's narratives, and of one another's stories and connections to the land, whether they be cultural, historical, or religious. It turns out, hand-in-hand hand is all about fostering these two things. And bilingual learning is a huge part of that.
1: In the kindergarten and first grade, that the, all the time, through all the day, through all the days of the week, the two teachers are in the classroom. They don't translate. They plan together. They, um, they speak in both languages. They might use a little bit of translation just like one word, one sentence if the children need that, but uh, they are very aware of um, the, uh, the, the problem of translation, because uh, if children know that every minute they will hear the translation, then they won't learn the language. This is
0: Inas Deeb. She's one of the original Palestinian parents who helped found Hand in Hand in Jerusalem and is the organization's director of education, specializing in the development of Hand in Hand's very specific pedagogical and curricular model. Most notably, it puts two teachers in every classroom, one native Arabic speaker and one native Hebrew speaker. I asked Ines why language learning was such a critical part of the school's model. And you'll have to forgive the audio of this clip because the school bell went off in the background as we were talking.
1: We, we believe that language is identity. An identity is language. And if you want to uh, understand the other, you have to understand the, the language. You have to understand what the joy uh, of what the words mean for the, the other part. So if you only teach this, what you have here in English, for example... It will not get the sense of the contact that we, we, we want them to, to experience.
0: So here's the key distinction between Jerusalem's school system and the rest of Israel. As Noah mentioned earlier, the Israeli public school system breaks down into Hebrew language Jewish schools and Arabic language Arab schools. If you're a citizen of Israel who comes from a Palestinian family, this would be the 20% of the Israeli population that we've talked about before commonly referred to as Israeli Arabs or Arab Israelis, then you're a part of the Israeli school system within the Arab track. But the interesting thing about Jerusalem is that not all of the city's Arab or Palestinian residents have Israeli IDs. Some of Jerusalem's residents are resolutely Palestinian in their identification. The reasons for this are numerous and complex and worth discussing in an episode devoted entirely to the city of Jerusalem. But for now, let's just suffice it to say that Jerusalem is a special case. The Palestinian residents of the city of Jerusalem can attend Jerusalem's public schools, even if they're not and have no desire to be official citizens of the state of Israel. And why is this so important? Because it means that in Jerusalem, a school like Hand in Hand has a unique entry point into the Palestinian communities, many of whom have friends and family who live in the West Bank, and that matters because, as with any community-based program, change spreads from person to person. So I asked Noah what it is that brings parents to Hand in Hand, and what kinds of changes the families see in their lives once their kids are enrolled.
5: I think it really varies, right? Some people come here because they, they really want their kids to grow up without prejudice, um, some people come here because they want to, their kids as, you know, as Palestinians, as Arabs, to grow up in a space that's, act, that's equal, that where Jews and Arabs are equal to experience. What does that feel like in, in my body, and my experience? Um, there are people who come here because it's a really good school and it's close to their house. Uh, and of course, once, once they come here, they go through whatever process they go through, right? Because a lot of times uh, you come here to bring your kid, but as a parent, you end up getting hugely uh, impacted yourself. I have so many stories I hear from parents about how, even just bringing your kid, you know, as as a Jewish parent, bringing your kid in, like, going into the Arab neighborhood that you were told, you know, don't go in there. Uh, It's scary, it's not safe. You drop off to drop off your five-year-old daughter at her friend's house. Um, And the first time you do it, how that feels, and how it feels the 10th time you do it, and how it feels 10 years later. And what kind of, what, like, layers of fear can be, can really wear away once you're interacting with real people. and and hearing their stories.
0: Of course, not everyone has been so keen on Hand in Hand's mission. The model of cross-cultural and cross-religious learning means that the curriculum recognizes and educates and celebrates the holidays of all three major religions in Jerusalem— Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. This— and the fact that the school teaches a clear message of coexistence, brought Hand in Hand into the crosshairs of Jewish extremists. In February of 2012, Hand in Hand's Jerusalem campus was defaced with graffiti, saying death to Arabs and Kahane was right, the latter being a reference to the Jewish far-right and ultranationalist politician politician-slash-rabbi, Mayor Kahane, whose party, Kah, has been outlawed in Israel as a terrorist group. And then in November of 2014, there was the attack.
5: So these were Jewish extremists who came into the school. It was night, walked into to the first graders, gathered books and papers and lighter fluid, and just set it all on fire. And then wrote on the walls, death to Arabs. Uh, there's no coexistence with cancer. So... You know, we showed up there. The principal showed up that night, got a call. There's a fire, thinking maybe there's an electrical fire. You know, who knows? And then she sees that, the writing on the wall. <laughs> and it's like, oh, like heartbreak. The space, it's like so safe. It's such like an intrusion and like a violation of, of this space. Um, and thinks to herself, you know, maybe this is over. Like, who's going to send their kids to school where it's really scary to have like, your six year old's classroom be and who knows what these people could do right but what happened was the next morning we showed up and there's hundreds of people coming to say we're with you we support you people from the school all the parents and also people from outside school just on the way to work just like we're here um, and including the mayor and including the Minister of Education and the Minister of Justice and you know two days later the president of Israel President Rivlin invited our students to his home for a day um, like later that week we had a march in support of the school with like 3,000 people
0: What Hand in Hand does? It's not easy work. And it's not fast work either. But it's big impact work. It's making more and more space for intergroup friendship, intergroup understanding, social and communal ties between neighbors who are painted as adversaries. It's creating diplomats out of kids and their parents who speak out against people who generalize or undermine or speak down to. It's creating linkages where there are supposed to be breakage points. It's a work in progress, and maybe on its own it's not a solution. Maybe the solution will only come from movement at higher levels in the political sphere, but it's a balm offered to a place that hurts. And it's motion within a system that sometimes feels stagnant. And for all of these reasons, When you stand and speak with the students of Hand in Hand and their parents, it feels like the beginning of something new, necessary, and hopeful. I have a question for you guys. Yeah, is it hard to explain the school that you go to when you talk to people who don't? go home? Yes. What do they say? You look.
1: You're like, yeah. <laughs>
6: it's not easy to be in this uh, community because uh, um people outside. It's like it's like a bubble, you know. Mm-hmm. And we are all good together, and we love each other, and you know it's perfect. But then we go outside. It's all those things that are so obvious to me that you really need to learn how to speak with them, and sometimes, sometimes you—they're really good people that you can uh, really talk to them, and they understand. But sometimes it's really, really mean. And mm. I have a friend from here, an Arabic friend, and I have friends outside from my um, football club, and they are really Jew. And when I <laughs> very Jewish, you know. I understand. And when I uh, went to play football, they say you have an Arab friend. They hear, I said yes, and they how? What? What do, what do you mean? Like and what do you do Same goes to Arabic. I, I know. Kids, friends tell me that same goes with them. <laughs>
0: Intractable is made possible thanks to the funding of Yale University's Howland and Cohen Fellowship. Special thanks this week go out to Jessica Murphy and Joel Shupak for their help on this episode. Intractable is produced and edited at the IDC in Herzliya in conjunction with the Daniel Pearl International Journalism Institute. Our logo is by Abby Sanders Schneider with musical advisory from Yvonne Saba. Next week on Intractable, we're talking about a difficult but ubiquitous subject, loss. What happens when the conflict takes away one of the people you love most in the world? How do you move forward? How do you shape the way you see the world, the other side, or even your own group? And what do you learn from that pain? We'll talk with a mother who lost her son and a brother who lost his role model. Until then, I'm your host, Skylar Inman, and this has been Intractable. Intractable